The stress is building up over what happens next since Britain voted to leave the European Union. However it finally plays out, the uncertainty has taken a toll on people's emotions. You can read all the rational arguments and the debate that goes on, but the majority of people vote by feeling and emotion. We'll get a personal look at the Brexit issue in the hour ahead. With the news about people fleeing Central America for the U.S. border, the conditions that they're trying to escape and how to change it for the better seems to have been getting overlooked. A person that has dignity and opportunity to work will never leave their home. Coming up, we'll hear about a pioneering effort in international development that I recently got to observe firsthand in rural Guatemala. And enjoying your first trip to Brazil may be easier than you think. A five-hour flight from Miami to Manaus, the capital of the Amazon. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. However the contentious Brexit of Britain from the European Union plays itself out, it's been bringing a lot of stress and uncertainty all across Europe. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear how a number of my European friends are being affected by it whether they voted for or against it, or weren't given a chance to weigh in at all. We'll also learn about an innovative model to combat systemic poverty that I've recently had a chance to observe firsthand. We'll hear how thousands of farmers in Central America are getting the chance to own the land they work on. But first, travel writer Seth Kugel offers advice for visiting the country that's been his home away from home, Brazil. Brazil is massive, exotic, and possibly a bit intimidating for the first-time visitor to decide just what to take in. Where should you go? What should you look for? To experience Brazilian culture, food, music, and nature, what's the best plan? We've asked travel writer Seth Kugel to join us on Travel with Rick Steves to help us plan the perfect itinerary for first-timers. Seth loves Brazil. He had an apartment there for several years in Sao Paulo, and he continues to be a frequent visitor to South America's largest country. Seth, thanks for being here. Or should I say, obrigado. <laughs> obrigado. Well, yeah, when you hear someone say obrigado, you say imagina, which is imagine. That's their response instead of you're welcome. It's very strange. Imagine. I kind of like that. And it's a reminder that Brazil is the Portuguese former colony, and it's Portuguese language, whereas the rest of South America is Spanish. And that's one of the great things about Brazil is that it's its own place and it's completely different from any other place you'll go. It's basically 90% of the Portuguese speaking world and it has its own culture, its own literature, its own cinema, its own music. I mean, the, the Portuguese watch Brazilian soap operas and listen to Brazilian music and Brazil's so much bigger than Portugal. Portugal's a wonderful place to visit, of course. But 90%, that's quite a statement. It may be 80%. It's 210 million people. I understand it's your favorite country. Mm -hmm. What is special about it? Well, it's a cliche to say, but what's really special about Brazil is Brazilians. They are, despite living in a country that's in a bit of economic upheaval, despite having a lot of inequality, they are the most fun, most friendly people you'll ever imagine. And I know that a lot of people say that about a lot of countries. Mm -hmm. But as I always say, I'd rather, I'd rather go to a bar with five Brazilian strangers than five American friends. Ah. If you're thinking about a Brazilian experience, uh, you got the music, you got the samba, you got the food and drinks. Uh, what are the most important experiences that would get you all excited about traveling to Brazil? Well, first of all, you need to choose where you're going to go. And I just can't not recommend going to Rio de Janeiro because mm -hmm. it is the Brazil of your imagination. 
Brazil has a lot of different kinds of places, but Rio is where you get the beaches. It's where you get the sort of the lifestyle, the easygoing lifestyle where basically you can wear flip-flops without fail to almost anything except the most expensive restaurants. It is the Samba capital. Mm. And it is, if you want, if you're into this, it is also the carnival capital, It is an, which is an unbelievable party that I wouldn't want to go to anymore. I've done it once and that's enough. Mm-hmm. But it's a cliche that you just got to do. When you think about the carnival, Seth, like Munich, Oktoberfest, you can get enough Oktoberfest for a lot of people's taste just by going to a beer hall any day of the year. Absolutely. How would you do that in Rio, get the carnival flavor without going through the whole carnival festival itself? Well, the Brazilians are good enough at having a carnival-like fun time that you can pretty much go to Lapa, the neighborhood of Lapa, any Friday, Saturday night, pretty much any night, and Mm. experience sort of Brazilian partying. There's nothing quite like carnival. They really take very seriously the sort of all rules are off kind of attitude, and it's just a humongous, massive party. But that's not for everyone. I agree that you could easily go to Rio another time of year and just go out on a Friday night and pretty much get a sense of what carnival would be like. Could probably spend double what you'd normally spend on a Friday night and still save a lot of money over being there during carnival and have a great time. That's the other thing. If you're going to go to Brazil during Carnival, you have to really want to go to Carnival. Yeah. Much more expensive, much more crowded, lots of annoying foreigners, <laughs> less Brazilians to hang out with. So save money by spending like a drunken sailor outside of Carnival time. Right. The other thing I would add is I don't want you to go just to Rio. And Rio happens to be quite close to the state of Minas Gerais, which is not hardly ever visited by foreign, especially by American tourists, but it has things that you would never imagine would be in Brazil. Beautiful colonial mountain towns. It used to be a mining district. Amazing, amazing food, great sweets especially, and they really know what to do with a pig as well. So you leave Rio, you take a quick flight and then maybe an hour drive, and you're in a magical colonial city. And the most famous colonial city is called Oro Preto, which means black gold. And they also now, Minas Gerais is the home of Inyo Ching, which is this amazing contemporary art property, acres and acres and acres dotted with both exotic palm trees and amazing world-class contemporary art. Okay, so you got Rio, which is the dominant city. You're going to see that on a short first trip rather than Sao Paulo, which is 11 million people and also very big and I'm sure has lots of charm, but Rio is the place. And then you've got the place you just talked about for the countryside and the smaller cities. Two other dimensions would be the Amazon and the beaches. Absolutely. So the Amazon would be... If you had three weeks for your trip, I'd do one week Rio, one week Minas one week Amazon. But the Amazon can be a pretty decent trip in and of itself, especially because it's much closer than Rio. Uh, Five-hour flight from Miami to Manaus, the capital of the Amazon. Wow. And the Amazon is everything you expect it to be. It is absolutely massive. The one thing that surprises people is it's not so easy to see animals there you really kind of have to stay in a more expensive resort kind of place Mm -hmm. uh, to see animals, which is why I sometimes recommend people skip the Amazon and go to the Pantanal wetlands, uh, which is in sort of west central Brazil, which is where you see jaguars and great birds Mm. and my personal favorite animal, the giant anteater, which is the greatest animal on earth. You know, you just hit on something there, Seth, that I think is really important wherever we're traveling. A lot of people, they want to see 
castles and they're going to go to the Rhine, or they want to see the fjords and they're going to go to a certain fjord, but then the actual experience might be better if they went to a place that was less famous. So maybe the Amazon is the most famous, but your image of the Amazon would be in a different place. What was the name of the place again? It's the Pantanal. It's a wetlands that kind of straddles Bolivia, Paraguay, and mostly is in Brazil. Okay. There's a pretty good tourism infrastructure there. Basically, what you usually do is you stay on a ranch, Mm -hmm. and they have guides that will sort of take you on little safaris. It's especially famous among bird watchers, Hmm. but I got to say, it is the best place for giant anteater watchers. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Seth Kugel about Brazil. We know Seth from his columns that appeared in the New York Times. His new book is called Rediscovering Travel. Seth, we want to get a balanced kind of approach. We're going to have our, you know, jungle experience. We're going to have our big city experience. What about your just idyllic Brazilian beach experience? You just want a few days to relax on the beach. Where would you go? Well, what I always like to tell people is if you're from the United States and you want to go on a beach vacation, just go to the Caribbean. It's so much closer. But while you're in Brazil, Mm -hmm. uh, there are little tricks to fitting in some beaches. You can, of course, go to the most famous beaches are in northeast Brazil, but that's another four-hour flight. There are great beaches just a little bit outside of Rio de Janeiro. In fact, you can take a ferry across the bay from Rio to Niteroi which is a smaller city, sort of Rio's twin, much smaller twin city. And the beaches there have almost no tourists, and they're full of Brazilians. And Hmm. one thing about Brazilian beaches is, you know, you don't need to go to an isolated beach in Brazil. That's what your resort in the Caribbean is for. You want to go and see Brazilians on the beach because they really know how to do beaches. They spend a lot more time standing and playing sports and being in the water than just lying down and reading. And people are very, very friendly. And the beach is a social place, not really a place to relax, although there are plenty of places you can go and relax on the beach as well. Uh, One of the things that's sort of central to Brazilian beach life are what they call bajacas, which are basically shacks set up every, you know, maybe 100 meters on the beach or even every 50 meters that sell not only snacks but also full meals sometimes and, of course, caipirinhas. It's almost like going to a bar. A caipirinha, that's a... Yeah, a caipirinha is the national Brazilian cocktail, which is usually traditionally lime and cachaça, which is often called Brazilian rum. So it's a great little cocktail. It's surprisingly strong. They sometimes put too much sugar in it, and you feel like you're just drinking lemonade, but Ah. you're really not, and suddenly you're chatting with everyone else at the beach and making plans to go out dancing later. And somebody steals your bag. How do you have to be careful about (laughs) theft on the beach, especially if you've been drinking? Well, Brazil is not the safest country in the world. It's always a concern when you go to the beach. Now, if you're in some faraway resort, it's probably less of a chance if you're in some faraway beach. But yes, what I always recommend to people when they go to the beach in Brazil, or even when they go out in Brazil at all, is don't take anything with you that you wouldn't mind losing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the beach, you know, just I'd say bring some cash and maybe a photocopy of your passport. You definitely don't want to bring your phone Mm -hmm. uh, unless someone's going to be watching it the whole time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, that relieves you of that relieves you of any sort of nervousness of, oh, my God, my whole life is going to be stolen from me. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Seth Kugel. His book is Rediscovering Travel, and it just shares piles of travel experience and wisdom. Seth, let's just quickly review the nitty-gritty for Brazil, just very quickly. How expensive is it? Do you need a visa? What's the best time to be there? How should you be careful of your health? This kind of thing. Sure. You do need a visa, although it's cheaper and easier than it used to be. So big thumbs up for Brazil for doing that. You should probably get a yellow fever 
uh, shot, yellow fever has been spreading in Brazil. You probably don't need malaria unless if you go to the Amazon, you need to check. It is not that cheap of a place to fly to, but these days it's a very cheap place to be because the currency there has really weakened against the dollar. So it's actually the perfect time to go to Brazil. The seasons are the opposite in Rio and Sao Paulo, but winter in Rio is quite beautiful. We're hmm. talking about like temperatures around 70. Sao Paulo in the winter can be quite cold, as can the south of Brazil. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Seth Kugel about Brazil. Hey, Seth, when you go back to your old hometown in Brazil and uh, you just want to settle in, what's your homecoming ritual? What do you miss about Brazil? And then when you get home, you just dive right back into it. I send out a note to all my friends in Sao Paulo, which is where I lived, and say, the night I'm coming, we're going to meet in this bar. And it's just free-flowing beer and good cheer. And, you know, I had said before that I prefer to go out with five Brazilian strangers and five American friends. Even better, five Brazilian friends. All right. Seth's back in town. Party. (laughs) That's right. That sounds great. I think that's a lovely way to reintroduce yourself to a country where the essence of a good time is the people. Seth Google, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. This was a lot of fun. Seth has posted articles he's written recently about his favorite places to visit in Brazil. It's on his website at sethkugel.com. We'll examine an innovative way to combat poverty in Central America in just a bit. But next, we hear how all the debate over Britain's divorce from the rest of the European Union has been affecting my friends and colleagues who live in England, Scotland, Ireland, and on the continent. Brexit gets personal in just a minute on Travel with Rick Steves. The news is heating up as the clock runs out on Britain's vote to leave the European Union. With whatever's going to happen in the weeks ahead, how is it being viewed by the people Brexit will affect the most? I've invited some of my European friends to sum up what impact Brexit's having on their lives. Let's begin with Hilburn Bies. Hilburn lives in Brussels, where many of the EU government offices are headquartered. He's joined by Martin Delandovitz, who leads tours of his home country of Wales and now lives in the south of France. Martin, what do you think of Brexit? The bottom line for me is I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of the British public uh, for having voted to leave Europe. That affects me, no longer be able to hold up my head in Europe. In cash terms, the night that Britain voted to leave the European Union, Sterling lost 15% of its value. The cost, the simple cost of living in Britain is considerably increased. People bang on about uh, nine billion pounds that we paid to the European Union. That's a fraction of what Britain will leave. So Britain's leaving is a tragedy for Britain and an inconvenience for the European Union. Hilburn Bies, you live in Belgium. How has Brexit impacted you and your world in Brussels? Honestly, Brexit hasn't impacted me directly aside from the amount of space it's taken up in the newspaper. But it has affected people like me in the form of friends that were working in London that are being relocated or are planning to relocate. There are a series of institutions, small offices that belonged to the European Union. There's a medical association of the European Union. It has to move. Cities like Amsterdam and Brussels are vying to obtain those institutions. So there, there are also people who see opportunity in it. And the latest time that I spoke to a lawyer who was attempting to specialize on Brexit issues uh, disappointed me and himself in saying, I don't know where this is going. I have nothing to tell my clients yet. But, but this is the point. Two years ago, 
the population of Britain voted to leave the... They don't know what they voted for to this very day, two years later. It's true. It's, it's an absurdity. And Europe is standing by just ready to collect the little broken pieces of London that have to fly back across the channel because Britain's pulling out of the game. Well, we'd rather it wouldn't have happened. Europe itself isn't pleased, but there are regions who see opportunity, opportunity. In, in absorbing mm-hmm. the headquarters of different agencies, the headquarters of companies that now need to have offices in Europe or on the continent rather than... Because they were in London. The, yes. So, assuming Britain pulls out, who benefits in Europe? What, what city is going to inherit... London's financial economy. Frankfurt, Paris, probably. Amsterdam. And the last person, I'm just throwing something in here, the last person to pull us out of Europe was Henry VIII. You know the Cotswolds, don't you, Rick? <laughs> sure. You know the Cotswolds. Yeah. They stopped building churches in the 1500s, didn't they? All right. Industries went, pop, we're not building anymore. Pascal Lamy, who's a, a former diplomat in, uh, in France, has described Brexit's complication as attempting to remove an egg from an omelette. Oh, how lovely. Oh, that's, yes. oh that's, that's clever and depressing. Yes. <laughs> Hilburn Buys, thanks for that insight from Belgium, and Martin Delandovitz from Wales. Thank thanks you so again, Rick. Thank you. One of the big sticky issues with Brexit is uncertainty over what to do with the open border currently within the EU between the Republic of Ireland and the UK's Northern Ireland. Let's hear from Paul Corkin. He's a loyalist Protestant who lives in Belfast. And Stephen McPhillamy. He comes from a Catholic family in Derry and now lives in the Republic. Stephen, are you for Brexit or against Brexit? I voted against it. I feel European. And with Brexit, the Republic of Ireland would stay in the European Union, but Northern Ireland would leave along with the rest of Britain. Exactly. Paul, are you for staying with Europe or for leaving Europe? I voted to leave. To leave. Yeah. So you are pro-Brexit. Yeah, I am, yeah. So in Ireland, Paul, you've had two years to consider the vote. Mm -hmm. Um, What's the sense now compared to what it was two years ago when you're entering the voting booth? It seems like there's an awful lot of things which need to be resolved. And it's been very, very difficult two years. Conversations between people, between friends, between brothers, for example, have been very difficult, sometimes very fraught. Stephen, you're for the European Union. You're for staying with the EU. When you think of your friends and your countrymen who are either for leaving or for staying, does it relate to the old sectarian uh, lines that, that we've known in Ireland where you've got unionists and republicans, unionists being people that want to stay with London, republicans that want to be united apart from London? Yeah, you see the majority of people in Northern Ireland voted to stay in the European Union. Not a huge majority, but a majority did. But that means that a majority of the Catholic community, the nationalist community, the community that identifies as Irish, it overwhelmingly voted to stay with the European Union. And the majority of the Protestant, Unionist, British community voted to leave. When you vote for Brexit, in other words, you vote to get out of the European Union, are you doing that for economic reasons or are you doing that for national pride and cultural reasons? Well, I've voted for two reasons, really. The first is the lack of democracy, as I see it, within Mm -hmm. the European Union. Right. Can I just say that I also feel very European, just like Stephen, Mm -hmm. but there's a big difference between feeling European and being a supporter or a fan of the European Union. For example, all the laws are suggested by the European Commission, whom we can't get rid of. They're unaccountable, really. They don't stand for election, unlike a a government which you can get rid of every five years. And secondly... I was convinced by the economic arguments that you could create trade deals with other countries in a way which you can't when you're a member of the European Union. You have to wait until 27 other countries agree with you. I think it's important and healthy that we do question the European Union and its government. I just felt that it was better 
for Northern Ireland to be part of the European Union because it kept us closer attached to the Republic of Ireland. But this brings mm-hmm. us back to our dilemma of a divided community there as well. And that is the overriding issue, I would think, from an Irish perspective of Brexit. People in Ireland who want peace don't want a hard border between the North and the Republic. Right now, with both Britain and Ireland in the EU, you don't need a border. Yeah. But if, if Britain pulls out, all of a sudden, by definition, you got a border. And that'll open up the possibility that the sectarian parties in Ireland will become inflamed again, and we could uh, risk falling back into the troubles. Yeah. Just wrapping up this little conversation with my two friends in Ireland, how has the whole Brexit discussion issue phenomenon impacted you just in your personal life in the last couple of years, Paul? It's impacted me in the sense that you try not to get into conversations about Brexit. I mean, you're from Northern Ireland, you don't talk about politics and religion openly unless you're with a few selected people. And Brexit is another one of those themes. Mm. It's a very, very delicate thing to talk about. And I have found that in countless conversations that I've either participated in or witnessed, nobody changes their mind 1%. It Mm. just does not happen. Stephen? It's impacted me because it's brought up old animosities in the media and in the politics and in the communities that we we have lived in harmony for 20 years now and you were hoping that they would all be gone and this has brought us back into our two tribal camps again mm-hmm. over an issue and that's unfortunate. Uh, I see an interesting bumper sticker at home and it basically says a picture of Northern Ireland, a map of Ireland and it says uh, Trump to the left of me, Brexit to the right, here I am stuck in the middle with you but it's EU. You know, EU. EU. <laughs> It's a mess, and it's going to continue to be a mess, and let's just hope it sorts out, and until then, Trump to the right, Brexit to the left, stuck in the EU with you. Take care. Thank you. Thanks very much, Rick. We're getting a variety of views on the personal impact of Brexit right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Next, let's bring in Liz Lister from Scotland and Paul Guest, who lives in the northeast of England. Thanks for having us. So, Paul, are you for Brexit or against Brexit? I voted leave. You voted leave? Yeah, I'm a Brexiteer. And Liz, how about you? I'm a Brexiteer, a reluctant Brexiteer, and I just do not know where I am now. <laughs> I'm, I'm lost and wandering. <laughs> it was a complicated thing to go through. I, I certainly uh, was torn. Right. I'm very much still 60-40. 60-40. Mm-hmm. Okay, but let's think through this. In the Scottish independence referendum, as it relates to Brexit, you were given the opportunity to break away from Britain and be independent or stay then you got a Brexit all of a sudden, and you realize, oh, the country we voted to stay with now may be leaving the EU. Would the vote for Scotland have been affected had people known eventually Britain was going to break out of the EU? Scotland and City of London were the only two regions of the UK who voted to remain part of Europe. Okay. But for me, in the question, why did I vote? It was a question of identity. I feel first and foremost Scottish secondary British, but I feel no European identity. You can read all the rational arguments and the debate that goes on, but the majority of people vote by feeling and emotion. Right. And identity is the powerful thing. And I feel that the money that was going and the bureaucracy and the increasing drive towards uniformity, a a European army, a European economic zone, Mm -hmm. I wanted to take back an element of control. And even if somebody said, you as a member of the United Kingdom, breaking away from Europe will not be good, at least in the short term for your economy, you would still say... I was prepared to accept that. So be it. 
now what is happening is as a result of I, I am so dismayed by Westminster politics and tribal politics, self-interest, completely depressed and despondent. And the obvious answer is an independent Scotland. So and that's so, going to be a kindled, this whole idea absolutely. again, if Brexit goes through. Absolutely. The agreement was that the referendum on independence in Scotland be once in a generation unless there was some significant issue which affected the Scottish people. And Britain and pulling out of the EU would be that. When Scotland wishes to remain. Paul Guest from North East England, when you think of the Brexit vote in your country, Liz mentioned Edinburgh and London were the two zones where most people wanted to stay with Europe. Mm-hmm. How do you break down the, the pro and the con considering small town, rural big city and so on? I think the problem was a lot of small towns and cities outside of London saw London as being elitist and being the be-all and Mm end-all where London isn't everything in our country. They don't make all the decisions. And you had the opportunity to put your foot down. Yeah, they, they they give people the vote and they quite rightly used it. Enough of this business with London calling all the shots. Correct. So it's a complicated issue. We don't know where Brexit's going, but you've had two years to deal with this. What's it been like? How has it impacted your life, Liz? I think it's been very depressing. It has superseded all other events. I think you have to realise that when people voted no as a protest vote, it was done in a context that nobody thought it would really happen. But I just want to show them. I'm not saying that that was my view, but I think that there was... For a lot of people. For a lot of people, that was, was the way of it. So, I mean, I say that my first identity is Scottish, but I actually feel more British now, conversely, (laughs) because we're getting a hammering. We are the laughingstock of Europe, Hmm. and it's very sad. Paul, how how has the last two years been for you? I think it's been quite a, a miserable and confusing period for everybody. But if you ask me... Am I raring to go and uh, and other Brexiteers raring to go? I think, yes, you know, we're a country that's used to picking ourselves back up off the floor and dusting ourselves off and getting on with the job. Liz? I think now I would probably vote to remain, but it would be a very resigned, reluctant decision to vote that. And I don't think that that's good for Europe to have a a member of the European Union brought back in because they just can't get out. I think if we vote again, we, we make a mockery of democracy. It's hard to know. It is. And this is what makes you so, so despondent. <laughs> oh, man. Liz and Paul, thanks so much and best wishes when you go back home and sort this one out. Thank you. Let's conclude our personal look at Brexit on today's Travel with Rick Steves with views from Fabian Ruger from Berlin, Germany, and from Donald White, a native Scotsman who's made his home in northern Italy for many years. Fabian, from Berlin, when you look at Britain and you look at it from a European Union perspective and a German perspective, what do you see? I see a country that seems to predominantly follow an emotional instinct, or rather, I should say, a government that follows an emotionally expressed instinct. And Germans are a good deal upset. And after now almost three years of talking about Brexit and following this emotional plan to leave the European Union... It is time that those who have an emotional point come up with a rational, reasonable plan to leave the European Union without hurting millions of people. So from your point of view, it's like, okay, Britain, you caused this problem. Now think of a a, a reasonable way to extricate yourself and they've been unable to do that. 
759 treaties have been signed in the past 40 years that the United Kingdom is aware of. They have signed those treaties. Oh. So how will you extricate yourself from those treaties? Looking back is a romantic impulse, and it's fine to look at the past, but you also have to look at the future. When the United Kingdom had an empire, its population was a considerable percentage of the world's population. Germany, for instance, today has less than 1% of the world's workforce, and it produces almost 10% of all manufactured goods on the planet. That is not a model that's maintainable. Countries in Europe need to stand together, or they're going to be the dwarves that they actually are. Donald White, you're a, you're a Scottishman. Yeah. And how long have you lived in Italy? I've lived in Italy since 1989. So this is a Before long Before that, time. I lived in Germany. Before that, I lived in Switzerland. Do you still consider yourself a Brit? Uh, you know, not really, because we've already got an identity crisis as to whether we're Scottish or British. That's true. And so a great solution was just to be European. Now, when you look at, at all your countrymen in, in the United Kingdom from your beautiful little hideaway on Lake Como <laughs> next to the Alps in northern Italy, what do you see? I see a nation divided, and I see no solutions. Um, for me personally, it's been very, very traumatic because the, the problem with people like myself who are living outside Britain, if you were outside Britain for more than 12 years, then you could not vote in Brexit. So this is a total sham of any democracy to try and say that, oh, we, have, we must stick to this now because 52% voted. But you didn't ask the million people living in Europe who it most affects. For a Brit who's been in northern Italy for two years wondering about where's this Brexit going to go, if Britain leaves the EU, suddenly you are no longer happily settled in northern Italy? We have no clue because nothing has been finalized. It and could, we don't know it, until it, it happens. It, it could impact you? It could. I mean, you know, I have a license to guide in Italy, which may not be valid once my nationality is no longer a part of the European Union. And there's a lot of, there's countless people whose lives have, have uh, been put on edge by this. Fabian, from your Berlin perspective, how has this whole Brexit uh, mess impacted uh, your life and pe people in Germany? There are various predictions happening right now about the future of the European Union as a whole. Because as the United Kingdom will leave, and I think that's at this point no longer a question, it's very clear that it will happen, the votes of the United Kingdom in the EU will no longer be there. And the Nordic countries, you know, the Scandinavian countries that were members, uh, Germany and so on, France, those as a whole will then have less than a third of the overall European vote. And what that means is that the other countries in Europe can outvote the hmm. northern countries, which are economically a little stronger. So it will change the entire arithmetic of what happens inside the European Union drastically. Okay, prediction time. Five years from now, where's Britain and where's the EU, Fabian? We'll still be in Brexit pain, all of us. I predict that some form of Theresa May's current deal will probably be coming through because there's very little other alternative at this point. And nobody will like it. And we will go into a phase of at least two years of renegotiating everything. So it, we, we have years of pain, of political pain ahead of us, all of us, the European Union and the United Kingdom. Fabian Reuger, you're such a depressing German. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, you have to look at the facts. So. <laughs> and Donald White, five um, years from now, what do you predict? 
I would not be at all surprised if we see a reunited Ireland and uh, and Scotland separating from Britain because 65% of the Scots voted Ooh. to stay in Europe. Ooh. And so there will be a huge momentum then for the Scots to say, okay, well, we want to stay in and we can become part of Europe and England can just sink. So we never liked them anyway. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Donald White, <laughs> Fabian Roger, thanks for giving us a little better insight from your perspective of what the heck's going on over there. <laughs> but we don't really know. No, we don't. We'll check back later. Okay, Thank thanks. You. Fabian Ruger comments on how Britain's departure will change the balance of power in the European Union in an extra to today's show. You can hear it, along with this week's show, at ricksteves.com slash radio. Next, we'll hear how farmers in Central America are able to work their way out of poverty. It's Travel with Rick Steves. I was recently on an educational tour of Guatemala. At the same time, America was unnerved by a caravan of refugees marching north from Central America, hoping to find asylum in the United States. It was a powerful and eye-opening experience, illustrating to me once again that you can learn more by actually going somewhere and talking directly with people rather than letting the evening news shape your global views. Flying home, I thought there are a variety of responses America could take to this refugee challenge. We could open our borders and welcome these refugees. We could build a wall and call out the troops to keep them away. We could punish their countries for allowing them to attempt to get to the United States. Or we could look to the root causes of why they're leaving and work in a practical way to give them reason to stay in their homeland. We're joined by two people dedicated to helping Central Americans develop to explore this challenge. They work for an NGO called Agros, whose mission is to help struggling farmers in these countries build their own communities, to engage in a global economy, and secure firm title to their land. Alberto Solano, who's from Guatemala, is the president of Agros. And Chris McGargy is the Vice President of Development. While I traveled to many places in Guatemala during my visit, Chris showed me around a few of the villages his organization, Agros, works in. And Chris and Alberto join us right now to sort through this fascinating challenge of Central America. Chris and Alberto, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. I came home realizing people in Central America want to stay in their homeland. People keep telling me, we just want to work and export and I realize there's a lot of structural poverty. Alberto, if you were to think of why your homeland is so poor that a lot of people need to leave, what are the roots of the poverty? What's the structure of poverty? First of all, as you said, nobody wants to leave their home. Who will like to put their family into that struggle, walk thousands of miles, and risk everything they have, not just their life, but the life of the loved ones? Because they don't even know if they'll get across the border once they get there. They know it's a long shot. It's a long shot, and they know it's full of risks, and it's full of people who have failed in the past. You know? yeah. So there has to be something profound that motivates you to do and take such a desperate measure. And what you find in our countries, it's a lot of disparity. A big gap between rich and poor. Latin America continues to be the most unequal region in the world. And Guatemala is wealthier than a lot of its neighboring countries, but it has more desperately poor people because their gap is even greater. It definitely is. The average Guatemalan can barely meet their food security needs. One of every two families lives below the poverty line. The average per capita GDP is about $4,500. Right. With that, you can barely buy 70% of the annual food basket. So even with perfect distribution of that income, you can barely buy enough to sustain the family. 
So a family with $4,500 a year is going to have a difficult time. And there's on average $4,500 per person, but it's divided so unequally that many people are risking hunger. That is correct. Right now, you can say that basically 68% of the country wealth, it's in the hands of 20% of the population. In Guatemala, what, eight or 10 families own most of the arable land? Well, you know, that has changed over time. Mm -hmm. You have to remember that Latin America has gone through 12 different land reforms, Mm -hmm. and each of them have failed. Guatemala went through its land reform in 1952, and today we're facing the same problems like 50 years ago. So this is a persistent thing. Land reform meaning small farmers want to have firm title to their land, and of course that's something you're working on in your um, NGO to help people have firm control of their land so they can just have that dignity of being not only self-sustaining, self-subsistence farming, but uh, growing enough food and enough variety of food to export and and have a little business for their family. That is correct. You know, at the center of development for Acros is land reform. It's the opportunity for families to own their land. If you look at land tenure in Latin America, 50 years ago there were a small group of families who owned 80% of the land. Today it's the same. It's just corporations and international business who are buying the land. Our guests on Travel with Rick Steves are Alberto Solano and Chris Magargi. They are the president and the development director for the nonprofit organization Agros International. Their work centers on eliminating the causes of extreme poverty that affects millions of rural residents in Central America. I recently observed their work in Guatemala and thought you'd appreciate knowing about it. Their website is agros, that's A-G-R-O-S dot org. Chris Magargi, when I was uh, with you in, in Guatemala, I came up with this concept called the three C's, corruption, conflict, and climate change, to be fundamental to poverty in countries, whether in Africa or Central America. And in Guatemala, we have corruption, we have a history of conflict, and we have climate change. Well, that's a really accurate indicator of the context that create poverty and create the kind of disparity we're talking about, the kind of extremes that would lead people to flee for another another place to call home. Certainly, conflict was a, a huge factor in Guatemala as well as other countries in Central America. Well, Guatemala had a, what do they call 30, it, the internal war? Exactly, about 36 years of conflict. 200,000 people lost their lives in that conflict. 200,000 people. What's the population of Guatemala, roughly, Alberto? 13 million. 13 million. So that is... Uh, significant. Uh, that's significant. Yeah. Okay, so a lot of death over 36 years... When I was with you in a cemetery of people who died fighting in that war, and we asked uh, the relatives of the uh, victims there, I asked them, I've seen a lot of countries in Central America that have had conflict. What is the common denominator? And it's land. Certainly. Land distribution, land ownership, and the lack of land. I mean, these are agrarian families that rely on land for their livelihood. They rely on farming. Talk also about corruption. It's heartbreaking to see the corruption that's in these countries. Sadly, corruption has become part of our way to govern. The abuse of power, the lack of rule of law, has basically built an opportunity for people to make corruption a national sport. What corruption does is to steal opportunities from the average citizen. Mm -hmm. In a recent study, it said that for every 1% of the increase in corruption, it takes about $450 of income of a family. That's 10% of the GDP of a person in Guatemala or 20% in Nicaragua. So it takes opportunities from people 
in a very direct way. So there's an elite class that is working with the government. When you have people who can abuse their power, who are in a position of, entrusted with a position of power, and we have a lack of rule of law, that means if somebody kills somebody, they're not likely to be charged with any crime. Impunity. That's not a very good mix when it comes to the average hardworking farmer. So this is a reality in Guatemala, and what's been in the news lately has been a lot of people rising up in Guatemala saying no more corruption, one government thrown out, another government put in, and that government becomes corrupt again. That is the real and sad reality of Guatemala. People stand up, people fight, they mobilize like we have never seen. They're able to make a historic change in government, but in a matter of months... That new government is corrupted. It's corrupted again. You know, you hear power corrupts. Boy, you see... Central America is a textbook example of that. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Chris McGargy and Alberto Solana. We're talking about the struggles of people in Guatemala and uh, how we might contribute to a situation where struggling people would choose to stay in their homeland, where they want to be, rather than become refugees and heading north for our border. We've talked about corruption. We've talked about conflict. There's also the third C, and that is climate change. Chris, how do you see, from your visits to Central America, climate change actually mattering for a struggling small farmer? I mean, we talk in the United States that climate change is going to come if we're not careful. My feeling is, in Central America, it's already there. If you you live in a small patch of land and trying to feed your family, it's tougher now than it was 20 years ago. Absolutely. Anyone who denies the reality of climate change, all they need to do is talk with a Central American farmer. What would they hear? Uh, They would hear about the fact that temperatures are much hotter, which affects crops that have been planted and have an expectation of uh, lower temperatures, like coffee, for example. We were visiting on the trip to UNI. We visited some coffee-growing regions, and those farmers uh, are complaining about the increase in temperatures. Going to higher altitudes is necessary for a productive uh, harvest. They're talking about an increase in overall precipitation, which actually can be a bad thing. Um, And they're also talking about changes in the the rain cycle, this rain season. So everything's kind of getting disrupted from the norm, and that's reducing their crops. So these farmers are relying on rainfall. And I think one mark of development is to let a smallholder farmer go from rainfall-based farming to water system-based farming, where you can have a reservoir and where you can distribute your water equally at your own tempo, rather than having the rain come in a more violent and a more unpredictable way. That makes a whole game changer for a farmer to have an irrigation system. But that irrigation comes with an increased investment, with new technical assistance, with the skills, and with the opportunity to learn how to do it. Chris, you and I were in a village called Paradiso. The Paradiso, yeah. yeah. Paradise. And Paradise. Yes. And I'll never forget going to the beautiful family of the school teacher. He was a yeah, school teacher. Yes, it was Diego and Caterina. And that was, yep. to me, that was not romanticizing poverty. That was just beautiful, sustainable. He was by no means rich, but right. he had the basics, didn't he? Indeed. Describe his family. Well, it's interesting. You go there, and obviously compared to the way life is for us here, one might look at first glance and go, oh, wow, this is this is rather a humble estate. Mm-hmm. But when in comparison to where that country has been and where that family once was, it's important to focus on the game changers like a cement floor in their house, a metal roof, 
a faucet. Yes, it's a single faucet, but a faucet that's right there where they don't have to walk a few miles every day to get their water. Huge difference. And then he had a variety of crops. He did indeed. And so they have land uh, apart from their home right there, but they also had some cultivos, some growing right there next to the house. Uh, His wife, Katarina, actually grows some herbs that she sells. And they have a goat herd, a thriving goat herd. They were actually given a goat as a part of a project that we, our organization has supported. And she has been really savvy around multiplying that herd. Nearby, you took us to the, the goat love shack. Yes. Uh, uh, we have Tell a us about goat, the love shack because goat, yeah. anybody who loves capitalism <laughs> would love this goat love shack. Yeah. And I was so glad when you arrived because no one there when I was there the first time would understand that reference. But you immediately got it because we actually watched how um, part of this goat production center that we support is a... Uh, introducing better genetic strains of goats. Mm-hmm. And the local villagers who've received a female goat and are trying to grow their herd can bring their goat uh, to this goat production center. The male goats do their business there at the Love Shack. Uh, they uh, make quick haste of it and then uh, help increase the population of the goats in the local communities. And so, it's quite, quite impressive. And another thing I learned, and I saw that in the bright faces of those children, was that now they have protein from goat's milk, and the indigenous Mayan people cannot digest cow's milk, but they have an enzyme that lets them digest goat's milk, and they get the benefit of that. Indeed, and the nutritional value and the protein of the goat's milk is incredible. And that particular family visited Katarina, the local clinic was wondering why the weight had shifted. So they were having weight problems in her among her kids, and they did yeah. regular well-child checkups, and she was bringing her kids in, and they started to see that reverse. And they said, what are you doing? And she explained goat's how milk. she's now feeding them goat's milk. And they were like, hmm, wow. Now, there are a lot of skeptics in the United States that look at this kind of uh, aid, and they just go, it's uh, cultural imperialism, or what are we doing down there? But I don't know how you can put anything but a positive spin on teaching a community that You need to take care of the nutrition of your children in the first 1,000 days. Protein is important, and cow's milk won't work, but goat's milk will. Here's a love shack. Here's 100 bucks to buy a couple of female goats, and by a a year later, you've got a shed out back with uh, eight goats, and you're selling your extra, and your kids are better nourished. Absolutely, absolutely. That's development. And sometimes that initial aid to get them into a spot of stability is absolutely uh, needed, but then shifting to a more empowerment approach that helps them help themselves out of poverty is really key, and that's what smart development really does. So, Alberto Solano, this is your homeland. You live in the United States now, but you're the president of an organization designed to help people in your homeland develop. What's the discouraging, wrong-minded kind of aid, and what's the kind of aid that Guatemalan people really want to embrace? Bad charity is the one that doesn't consider the dignity of the person at the center. Right. Good economic development is the one that believes in the capacities of the people because at the end of the day, when you talk to them, what they are thriving for is opportunity. What organizations across the world like ours do is to believe in the capacities of those people and build them up from there. These people are among the hardest workers that you ever see. Most of the time, It's not about not working hard. It's about being able to succeed in what they do. There are some structural problems that affect the family's capacities to generate the income they need. And in the case of the goats, it's not just about providing milk for the family. Now these families are processing the milk, are creating added products like what we call cajeta, which is a sweet kind of byproduct that is being sold in some of the best elite restaurants in Guatemala. So 
from a food security intervention, now these families are creating a business that can sustain their living and create better opportunities for their kids. And their neighbors see that and they go, oh, all right, let's educate our children, let's have good hygiene, let's get another goat and take it in, and, and let's connect with that value chain. Something I learned about is the value chain, not just a subsistence farmer, but a farmer that's going to be connecting with the larger economy and selling their extra products uh, driven by the market and demand in the big city, whether it's exported to the United States or just sold in Guatemala City. That's how they're going to get ahead. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Chris McGargi and Alberto Solano about addressing rural poverty in Central America, specifically Guatemala. Let's just close with an example. You both are dedicating your careers to economic justice in Central America. In one vivid example of real life, real people, how do you feel gratified in your work, Chris? Well, just a couple of days after you and I were together uh, in the Ichia region, I traveled up to La Barrias region and uh, visited a community called La Providencia. And there I met a woman named Juana. I spent time in her home. It was similar to our visit uh, with Diego and Catarina that we were just describing, the goat herding family. And Juana has a concrete floor. She has metal roof. She has a faucet. However, the first thing she actually showed me when I walked into her house was she took me back to, it was an outhouse-like structure, but in that structure was a porcelain toilet with a water feed and a septic system out behind it that flushed. It was an odor-free, beautiful bathroom. And I've never seen such an incredible infrastructure. She was so proud of it and she kept flushing it. Ah. And she also has a thriving chicken-raising business. She's a coffee farmer. And so just real advanced, but what really has that stand out is I actually talked with her about what was different, what was your life like as a kid? And I paused in my conversation with her and asked her to describe her life. And she just like rolled her eyes like, oh my, no comparison. She was barefoot all the time, dirt floor. Her house was a stick house with straw roof. They cooked over an open fire in the house, certainly did not have any water supply. She completed first grade. That's the entirety of her education. Amazing difference, life-changing from one, you know, Reason one for lifespan. hope. Alberto, what's an example of uh, how your work is getting traction and, and feels gratifying for you? I will never forget during my first visit to a community in Honduras called Piedra de Orev. I was just starting this job. Yeah. And when I went to that community, one person came and greeted me and thanked me because of the benefit he had been receiving. I said, and I told him, hey, I'm new here. I haven't done anything for you. And he just smiled, gave me a hug, and told me, you know what? In this last five years, I have made more than the last 30 of my entire life. It's something that I will always remember. The smile of that person, the gratitude, the dignity, the self-esteem, the example that he had become in just five years of work. And what was he making? He was an amazing tilapia producer. He was doing fish. So somebody didn't give him fish, they gave him a chance to have a fish farm. And he became one of the best fishermen that we have in the community. He does coffee as well. He has some pigs. And he's a very, very savvy businessman. And Alberto, there's a man that we're not going to see in a caravan marching desperately north to the United States. Absolutely not. A person that has dignity and opportunity to work will never leave their home. Alberto Solano, Chris McGargi, thank you so much for sharing in your exciting and gratifying work. Thanks for having us. Thank you for the opportunity. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. 
Thanks to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in New York City for their help this week. Thanks to Sarah McCormick for her help this week. You'll find more at ricksteves.com radio. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.